Welcome back again to Talking Catholic with David O'Gray. You know, I, I believe that we deserve to live in a world where people love the truth, right? And where the pursuit of truth is the most important thing. I believe uh, we deserve a church where Catholics of various opinions are, are open to entering into a dialogue to discover the truth, into a dialectic, so that we Catholics might not just speak to our choirs and to our echo chambers because such behavior, such, such tendencies only stirs the visions and, and reinforces the ugly side of tribalism. As a person who pursues the Dominican path of spirituality, truth is all that matters to me. And as the, the prominent black Catholic traditional or conservative voice in Catholic media over the last 10 years, I've tried my best to engage those who we might categorize the Catholic left to enter into a dialectic to discover the truth. Because again, we deserve a church in the image of Christ, Christ who is not afraid to speak with people who disagree with him, so that the truth might prevail in the end. Not to belabor the point, but it should be noted that over the years, I've reached out to people on the so-called left to defend their opinions, to move out of their comfortable echo chamber, and to engage with those who they demonize or don't agree with. I've reached out to Father Josh Johnson, who preaches about systematic racism and who thinks you can fix racism by teaching white people to be nice. I've reached out to Gloria Purvis, who sees everything through the construct of race. I've reached out to the people of Black Catholic Messenger to defend their race essential and gay essential perspectives. I've reached out to other race essentialists, such as Dr. Ansel Gustin, Dr. Tia Noel Pratt, Brian Massengill. Yes, multiple emails and Twitter direct messages were sent when possible. So, and no reply. <laughs> no, not even so much as saying, no, thank you. Screw off, David. So, not only they're, they, they, un, they are uh, unwilling to enter into a dialogue, but they're rude about it. And again, as the prominent black Catholic conservative voice in Catholic media, I'm the very person, I'm the very person you want to converse with if you can stand by what you say. This pipe dream that David O'Gray will just go away if we ignore him, if we just keep talking to each other, that pipe dream is missing a whole lot of context. But I understand why some people only want to speak to friendly crowds. Some people just don't want to be challenged. They don't want to be uncomfortable. They're not interested in the truth. I also understand a problem of me. I know I told um, Dr. Sam Rocha when he and I were having a dialectic that, yeah, I told him I, I've invited Gloria Purvis onto my podcast. She never said to my invitations. He told me, he said, you know what? Don't underestimate the value of liking someone. You know, don't underestimate that someone may, they, they hate you or hate what you stand for. And he said, the glory doesn't like you. I understand the emotion of like, and I understand how that emotion can get in the way of the pursuit of truth. I also understand some people's perception of me and why they would be afraid to sit across from me. If their perception of me is all they're working with, I know I come off as abrasive. The manly man, the alpha male type, I get it. But those of you who met me in person, you know, I'm like a gentleman. <laughs> you know, I just laugh all the time. So my opinion on people who only want to speak to their base, whether in politics, business, or religion, is the same. I don't respect people who only want applause and not critique. I do not believe as Catholics that it is in your best interest to listen to those who are part of the problem of division in the Catholic Church. From Josh Johnson, Father Josh Johnson, to Brian Massingale, to Gloria Purvis, to James Martin, 
all of them, if they're afraid to speak to the so-called other side, then there are parts of the problem in the Catholic Church and they should be ignored by you. But fortunately for us today, I did find someone who will converse with us about race essentialism in the Catholic Church. It's shameful that this good man is not even black, but that's how it is sometimes. But he's smart, and I was curious to ask him, why are the race essentialists in the Catholic Church so upset with Archbishop Jose Gomez for calling out wokeness in the Catholic Church? I hope this dialectic is helpful to you. Talking Catholic begins now. Matt Capodacano, welcome on to Talking Catholic. How you doing? I'm great, great, David. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Let me introduce you um, to those who don't know you. So Matt writes at the National Catholic Reporter. Where is Peter? Crisis Magazine. He is a Cyril Malabar right Catholic. A first-generation Indian-American, he has a Master of Arts degree in philosophy from Fordham University, a Bachelor of Arts degree from Creighton University in Business Administration, Finance, and Philosophy. In real life, Matt is a finance professional who lives in um, the L.A. area with his wife and two children. So, um, And I want to emphasize that last part because Matt and I are going to talk about some things. You may disagree with Matt. I don't know, but... It's important to see here that at least three people in Matt's life loves him, right? Two of them don't have a choice. One does. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. And as I was talking about in my interest to the show, um, you know, I reach out to a lot of people to get them on my show. It's easy to get people on my show who agree with us and, and you know, promote things and have a, an agree fest. It's more difficult to get people um, on a show who um, there may be some contention around issue. I recognize some of that as a me issue, how people's perception of me. I get that. But do you think there is, is there, do you notice that as well? Should there be more crossover on issues where it's just not people just talking to the choirs? Absolutely. Absolutely. I 100% agree. We really need to move out of our echo chambers. And I've been playing a lot with uh, John chapter 17, where Jesus prays to the Father, I pray that they be one as you and I, Father, are one. And I see that as our measuring stick as Catholics. Do we want unity with the Trinity and to participate with the um, Sacred Heart? Do we want to really be united with God? And if that's the case, then we also need to try to be united with our brothers and sisters in the faith, not just those who are on our quote-unquote side, but who really want to be united with us, yeah. or united with, but to be united with, with, uh, with Christ and his mission. So I, I think it's important to, to listen to one another, to understand yeah. one another. And I have actually had the grace to, as you name be able to write for various publications who don't necessarily agree with one another. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and I love them all. I mean, crisis. It's great because if I want to talk about abortion in an in an unapologetic manner, I can. You know, National Catholic Report. If I want to talk about something going on, let's just say in the in the um, Cyril Malabar Church, and now there's colorism involved. You know, that's something mm -hmm. that they'd be interested in, or something about like you know 
looking at Jesus from the lens that of someone who's Indian American seeing Jesus as, you know, someone who's Middle Eastern, brown skin and, and whatnot. So I really don't fit any sort of box, let's just say, you know, Cyril Malabar Catholic. I grew up in a pretty conservative um, kind of church upbringing. You know, I didn't mention this, but I spent three plus years in the Jesuits. And so you think, oh, wow, that's a different order. But honestly, it was a lot of um, Orthodox conservative Jesuits that were what attracted me to the order. Like, there are Orthodox Jesuits? It's like, yeah, there is, are. Is that how you got to Fordham? Because that is that still a... Because I know there's other Jesuits there. That's that correct. What? So okay. when I was at Fordham, that was actually during my Jesuit formation. That's why I was doing a, a graduate studies in philosophy and theology. And um, yeah, it was a great experience. Ironically, though, I was in New York. I got kind of thinking about finance and I was thinking about where does God want me? And that's when I decided, uh, you know, time to leave the Jesuits and eventually get married. So, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. You know, I have that symbol because I was I was thinking about I was discerning the priest as well. And so that's how I got into pursuing a master of arts degree in theology. And so you discern out of it and then you're like, what do you do with this degree? <laughs> So, but you, but you had a lot of things there. You have finance, you have philosophy, and you had business administration. So, is that how is that what was going on? How you how philosophy ended up in those administration and finance degrees? You know, what's kind of interesting is when I was an undergrad, I was thinking about the priesthood as well. Almost, um, almost joined the Archdiocese of Omaha as a diocesan seminary. Prior to that, I was studying. I was actually a, a consecrated hermit i was i was with a new religious order in omaha they i was there for about 15 months kind of felt it wasn't uh all in the up and up let's just say and then i was proven right probably about six years seven years after i departed from the order they were shut down by the archbishop so um but part of that was i i was uh, studying philosophy um in undergrad because i thought all right i'm gonna eventually go to seminary so it'd be something good to have and then you know, eventually joined the Jesuits and had to study philosophy and theology all over again. But at the uh, graduate, yeah, 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 man, that's interesting. Yeah, I want to have you back on maybe another time so we talk. about I'm really interested in talking about some issues in India and um, some Catholic Catholic questions there. But for now, I want to talk to you about this thing that man it was really stirring up in in the Twitterverse recently, um, stirring a lot of dust <laughs> and debris over there, and it generated. Even a petition from a couple organizations, Faith and Public Life and Faithful America, a petition was gained over 9,000 signatures calling for Archbishop Jose Gomez um, of Los Angeles to apologize. Um, black, well, I don't know, you know what this means, black Catholic leaders, so-called black Catholic leaders, I don't know if we have an election for black leaders, Catholic leaders, but um, spoke out in response to his remarks, calling them false, irreprehensible, harmful to the uh, black American community. Among them was the National Black Catholic Sisters Conference, which pinned a statement in response. Other groups such as Pax Christi USA also released an open letter. But if you're reading some of the Catholic publications, the only places where you heard about this was on the so-called um, left or liberal-minded wing of the Catholic Church. And I wanted just to open up our little dialectic here, just reading briefly what your bishop, um, your archbishop, had, 
had said it, what he had said in a um, video to the Congress of Catholic and Public Life in Madrid, Spain on November 4th. So there's really three points that he outlined here, but he opens up with an apologetic, says, you, you've asked me to address a serious, sensitive, and complicated topic. So this was requested by them. The rise of new secular ideologies and movements for social change in the United States and the implications for the church. So he makes three points. The first one, he says, first, I want to talk about the wider context of the global movement of secularization and dechristianization and the impact of the pandemic. And he makes three points. I found three points in there I, I, would, I would read briefly. The first was an elite leadership class has arisen in countries that has taken little interest in religion, no real attachment to the nations they live in or local tradition. Second, this elite worldview, there is no need for old-fashioned belief systems and religions. In fact, as they see it, especially religion, especially Christianity, only gets in the way of the society they hope to build. The new societal movement, the third point, the new societal movements and ideologies that we are talking about today were being seeded and prepared for many years in universities and cultural institutions both tension and fear caused by the pandemic and social isolation and with the killing of unarmed black men by a white police officer. These things talking about George Floyd here and the protests that followed in other cities. These movements were fully unleashed into our side. So that's his first point about the global movement and secularization, decristianization. Then he moves on to the second point, Matt. He says, second, I want to offer a spiritual interpretation of the new social justice and political identity movements in America. Here he makes two things I will highlight. He says, here's my thesis. I believe that the best way for the church to understand the new social justice movements is to understand them as pseudo-religions and even replacement and rival rivals to traditional Christian beliefs. Second, he notes, whatever we call these movements, and he puts all these in quotes, Matt, as you, as you read, he says, social justice, He's naming these movements, social justice, wokeness, identity politics, politics, intersectionality, successor ideology. They claim to offer what religion provides. They provide people with an explanation for the events of the condition in the world. They offer a sense of meaning, a purpose of living, and feeling of belonging to the community. Even more than that, like Christianity, these movements tell their own story of salvation. Finally, Matt, he makes his last point. This is his third point here. He says, finally, I want to suggest some evangelical priorities for the church as we confront the realities of the present movement. At the present moment, he says, my answer is simple. We need to proclaim Jesus Christ boldly, creatively. We need to tell our story of salvation in a new way with clarity, confidence, without fear. This is the church's mission in every age and every cultural moment. So, Matt, I mean, what's, as, as they say in pop culture, where's the lie? <laughs> well, for me, and I, well, I guess I'll take a step back there. I guess the uproar from people, as, as you've, as you've so named, I think they're, they're seeing what, what uh, Archbishop Gomez is saying, it's almost like he's taking social justice movements and making like this uh, kind of this binary. It's like 
the the justice movements are bad. Christianity is good. And there's no sense of like an in-between. And I think this is where Archbishop Gomez, in my opinion, had the opportunity to say, where does the church bring true justice? Where can and where does the church? He does say that the church has been anti-racist from the beginning. Well, you know, there's some historical evidence that suggests otherwise. But Christ, certainly his sacred heart, wants to lead us all to see all our brothers and sisters of every race, every peoples, as loved, as holding, having true dignity. Really, I if, you know, we're, we're, we all fall short. Where I see Archbishop Gomez had the opportunity was for to point us to the sacred heart of Jesus first off and to say, here's where we can learn to imitate the heart of Jesus and see those who are experiencing um, marginalization, injustice, and where can we go and bring Christ's love? Now, what's interesting, if, if we were truly living to our fullest, to our fullest potential as, as members of the body of Christ in promoting love of neighbor, especially of those who are racially marginalized, there would be less of a need or less of this impetus for other secular movements to have to come forward. I mean, we wouldn't have, Catholics wouldn't have to look at Black Lives Matter and say, oh, wow, they're doing something over here because we'd just be doing it on our own. We would be out there saying, hey, wait a second. This is a child of God. This person, Imago Dei, we need to reverence the Imago Dei in all our brothers and sisters, regardless of race, regardless of skin color. And I believe that that's, you know, I've, I've been, re I read, um, Last year, I spent reading um, De Lubach's book, Catholicism, where he goes through the church fathers. And one of the things that really struck me is how much they focus on the universality of the church. I mean, there's a powerful line, even from John Chrysostom that I'm going to pull up here, where he says that in Christ's body, there is one, where the one in Rome looks to the one in India as, as a fellow member in the body of Christ. And that's just such a beautiful line. There's another where De Lubach himself talks about the 12 apostles symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel. And that meaning behind that is this call for universality. Mm -hmm. So Gomez is right in the in sense that from our very beginning, we are a universal multicultural church that is called to embrace and love all of God's people. But we do fall short. Right. And, you know, I think he does talk about towards the end, how we were created in the image of God. But I think where he kind of fell short is emphasizing how the church can be further brought forth into, into calling forth this mission amongst ourselves. I mean, I know the last, call it several decades, the bishops have come back with some sort of statement on racism. And, you know, they've gotten progressively better. They've kind of fallen short here and there. But... I think we just need once and for all to come almost to like a, a self-examination in the church, especially in the U.S. What are we doing for our racially marginalized brothers and sisters? And let us be empowered by the sacred heart, by the love of Christ to really go forth and to love our neighbor. Not for a secular, not for a secular purpose, not 
you know, for some quote unquote, you know, because it's, it's the, the end thing, but because this is what Christ calls us to do. So there's aspects of our faith that we really need to tap into that. I think Archbishop Gomez was almost getting there, but not quite. But at the same time was also, you know, whether intentionally or not disenfranchising members of the church who are trying to, to, um, to really put their best foot forward in the world, trying to, whether, you know, whether it is truly that they feel God's love and that's what empowers them, or if it's more of a, more of a, more of a secular justice thing moving in them, it, it, it disenfranchised their works and disenfranchised their, their zeal. And, uh, and I think, so that was, that was part of the backlash. I mean, for instance, uh, Gomez does bring up uh, Dorothy Day and her work. Now, the funny thing about Dorothy Day is, you know, in her time, people thought, you know, she's a crazy liberal, you know, communist Marxist, you know, yeah. bishops hated her. She hated bishops. And here we go, <laughs> you know, honoring her today. Yeah. You know, um, Catholic worker, which I'm, I wasn't very familiar with, of that movement until uh, a few years ago. But um, people from from the L.A. Catholic worker, they had some words about Gomez's statement. And it was uh, out in the L.A. Times. You know, they weren't happy. It just felt like, hey, you're here, you're talking about Dorothy Day, and here we're doing a work of Dorothy Day, and we're we feel like we're the ones getting getting the foot handed to us and not not our hand. You know, uh, there's one more uh, point I want to make. I think where Gomez could have shown more invitation is, I mean, because he has made some positive statements. You know, after the death of George Floyd, he made a statement about how it was, this was a senseless and brutal act. It is a sin that cries out to God, meaning the death of George Floyd. And so he's, he's made these statements, but I think, and you know, we all have our strengths and weaknesses, but I think one of the things he could have done is we have several black Catholic parishes in the heart of LA. It's come together with these people, hear them out, hear their cries. Here's, what their experience of racism is and, and just be shepherd, just be shepherd, just receive them. And, you know, I think that's what the sacred heart is calling us to. It's calling us to listen. It's calling us to receive people, receive people, honestly, unabashedly, let them come vulnerably, be vulnerable with them. Um, and I think when we create a false dichotomy of, of seeking justice and, kind of let, let labeling things as Marxist and woke and, you know, not really saying, well, where, where is Jesus calling me in this? Where can I serve God and serve the church and love my neighbor in this? Yeah. And I suppose that's the rub right there is that from maybe a perspective of Gomez, just in his letter, at least in this, in this narrow address, when he's just talking about um, the, maybe these, the, the negative side or the danger of some ideologies, ideologies in a movement that maybe that's the rub right there that attaching ourselves to devices or institutions in society that are not in themselves ordered to the cross or ordered to Calvary. That's not their end destination. Always presents an opportunity to get off track if they're headed in a different direction, if they're not headed to the cross. 
And so I think that's what, that's, you know, whenever I'm reading this, I'm, I'm pointing out how he's talking about how these ideologies, they present a new, or they offer a new a, a story of salvation, a new um, soteriology. And this is the same critique that, you know, we would see with Freemasonry, you know, for the last 300 years that they're presenting a different path, a different, um, a different truth. And so, um, and, and so in there we see things such as indifferentism, right? And so it just seems like that's just a, a clear and present danger to warn people and to warn society that these some of these ideologies and organizations, they're just headed in a different path. They're not saying they're not on the same path of us. They're not pointing to the cross as a solution. Yes, they're talking about sin in their own language. They're talking about racism. They're talking about other injustices towards the poor, the imprisoned, those on death row and things like that. But what they're offering a solution, offering as a solution is not Christ Jesus, not his grace or anything like that. They're offering policy, they're offering legislation, they're offering movement and activism. And so is there, <laughs> I see, I hear what you're saying, but is there some sort of middle middle way? I mean, should the CAFL belong to an organization that's just, that? that's not the end, end, end destination? Or should a Catholic just be like this like Gomez Archbishop Gomez saying at the end, just proclaim Jesus Christ boldly. Let that be the end. Is is there what what do you say, Matt? I mean, yes, we need to both end. We need to proclaim Jesus Christ and we can be like Saint Francis of Assisi and say, preach the gospel, use words when necessary. Or even from the from Saint James, faith without works is dead. And so how can we proclaim the gospel in a way that's credible, in a way that's not just empty words or empty promises, but brings hope, brings the sacred heart of Jesus, which is about transforming our hearts and the hearts of other people. Where when, when, we, when we learn to encounter people who are experiencing injustice, who are experiencing um, some sort of uh, harm to their dignity of who they are, we not only bring Christ, we not only through through our, our broken vessels, we bring Christ, but we also encounter Christ in them. And so in that process, our stony hearts become transformed in the hearts of flesh. It's, it's really a mighty grace. Um, but I think part of it is seeing what these other movements are doing and using that gift of discernment. There are some things where we align with them in terms of, yes, there should be no black people that die unjustly. You know, they should have um, there there should be equal treatment with black people. Um, there are elements where we certainly align. And then there are elements where, you know, they're promoting, let's just say something. They, they have a very different worldview when it comes to LGBTQ than what the church teaches. So it doesn't mean that we have to subscribe to everything that that um, that they're promoting, just like. In the pro-life or anti-abortion movement, we have people that are that come together that are not just Catholic, they're Protestants or other other denominations. And we don't agree with each other on everything, but when it comes to the life and the dignity of the unborn, we can come together. And so I think there's a way where we can learn to listen and to come together and you know understand that we have differences, but find where we have some some equality and some like-mindedness and pursue those avenues together. Do you think the claim that Archbishop Gomez was just being tone deaf or 
the word that I think is popular today that he had a blind spot when he mentioned things like the church had, you know, had you know fought against racism. Uh, clearly, I think he's being idealistic here. <laughs> I think he's talking about the church as an institution where the people were in the church, clearly, right? <laughs> but, it, I mean, was that just a pot shot? Or, I mean, what do you think? It was interesting. I When I read that comment about the church has always been anti-racist, it's, well, Christ certainly desires that we love every neighbor. That's what he, what he spelled out for us in the gospel. Has the institutional church done that? No, we've fallen short, unfortunately. And that's where the institutional church can can do a mea culpa. They can do an examine. They can really come before God and say, Lord, we have sinned. Here's where we need to grow. We need to grow by your grace. Um, for instance, he mentions um, uh, Augustus Tolton. Now, the interesting yeah, thing no, about Augustus. I saw people made some an issue about that, yeah. Yeah, what's interesting about Augustus Tolton, um, you, you may already know this, but you know where he was ordained, right? Yeah, Rome. Yeah, and you know why yeah. he was ordained in Rome? Yeah, because he couldn't find yeah, a seminary here. Yeah, and so that's kind of like, I mean, the church has had a history, especially in the U.S., where there's been times when, you know, something like that, if, if the church were truly anti-racist at its core, then he would have been ordained. We probably would have had more um, black vocations. Um, but, and Augustus Tolton in his time certainly didn't get the honor that and the recognition that he's getting today. Right. So, I mean, the church is growing, the church is changing, and the church, the institutional church, we as a body have, have room to grow. Mm-hmm. And, but at the same time, do you think it's, it's right to say when people say, um, I mean, the whole race essentialism right is there an undertone here with the people now granted the people who are who are pressing gomez here with the petitions or anything everything we can't say that they were predominantly black groups you know you had pax christie you had even non-catholic groups um the faith in america group or whatever um but was is there like an undertone of race essentialism here of of saying oh you know poor black people um they're being attacked again, and we have to do something for them. Or were there other issues with other indigenous groups that were upset? Or was this like this, like a race essential issue? So I'm going to reveal my ignorance. When you say racist essentialism, um, what do you mean by that? Yeah, um, race essentialism is just literally, you know, people saying that um, a particular race is the most essential thing, um, the most important thing. The most important thing you need to know about me is that I'm black and that the I see everything in the world through that perspective is the most essential thing about me. So I want to say, was the argument here just about race essentialism is just a, a black issue is saying that um, that Archbishop Gomez is attacking blacks and wokeness and that we need to stand up for that and push back against that. Or is there other issues was he it was was a perspective perspective that he was attacking other groups other than blacks yeah that's a good question i you know definitely with wokeness there there were certain kind of buzzwords that were that were thrown out that was kind of like explain explain those like because i really the marxism yeah there was a marxism the wokeism 
Interesting thing when he referenced Marxism, it was in reference to liberation theology. Right. And, you know, I, I was doing some reading on liberation theology. One of the one of the martyrs, um, Ignacio Alacuria, uh, he actually wrote against Marxism. He actually had has, uh, I believe, multiple articles that about against Marxism, it's atheism, it's um, subversion. Um, but what's what's kind of sad and ironic is the reason one of the reasons why the the military targeted him and the other martyrs is they pin them as Marxists. Oh, these are Marxists. We got to get rid of them. And here he is kind of saying that actually having critique of Marxism. Um, liberation theology, from my limited understanding, sees one element of the Marxist lens in identifying that there is this inequality, this divide between the, the rich and the poor, and that's yeah. that's growing. Um, where, from what I understand, the liberation theologians diverge is they, you know, they recognize that Marxist has an atheistic vision, whereas we they see that it is important to see Christ in the poor and Christ com compelling us toward the poor. Um, it's, it's really an act of, of charity, an act of mercy at the end of the day, where we encounter Christ in the poor and we are called by Christ um, to the poor. Another liberation theologian, Gustavo Gutierrez, talks, talk, uses the analogy of the, the Good Samaritan and saying we find Christ uh, in the poor who's in the ditch. And, you know, it's just a beautiful analogy. So, you know, back to the initial point, there was there's certain kind of, whether it's dog whistle buzzwords, where when the way it was hit, there, I think it, it really just triggered people where they say, it's woke because whether it's Fox News or, you know, some some other outlet where when they talk about wokeness or Marxism, it's usually as kind of like uh, some sort so of. They, they were thinking that they really didn't give Archbishop Gomez the benefit of doubt here. They just kind of took they saw certain trigger words and they saw that in, in proper society, those are words that are, you know, we use politicians are using on the right to trigger people and things like that. And here is Archbishop Gomez using those same words. And I thought that was unfair because looking at his record, I don't know that, that people can ever say that he's, but you live in LA. I mean, is, does he have reputation as being this person? Well, it's interesting. So I'll, I'll kind of back up here a little bit. We in LA were very excited to have him because number one, he was a great Bishop in San Antonio you know, Mexican descent coming to an archdiocese that has a large population of people descended from Mexico, Central and South America. Um, I'll, I'll be even more candid, you know, moving away from Cardinal Mahoney was a good thing in, in more ways than one. Um, I know a lot of the seminarians, you know, prior to Gomez and during Gomez, they're more of a conservative bent. So they, they were happy to have an archbishop that would be kind of, you know, with them, similar leanings. Uh, I think it promoted more kind of conservative trend orthodoxy within a lot of the parishes. Usually it was kind of a complete bifurcation where this parish in this neighborhood was very to the left, another one very to the right. Uh, so now it's a little bit more kind of, uh, I guess, e even, let's just say. Um, another another kind of interesting point about Gomez. So uh, when I was, I, I was living in Houston briefly and I'd go to the, um, downtown Houston, the Opus Dei had a, had a chapel where they had, you know, mass, adoration, confession, and confessor I went to, um, 
you know, knew um, uh, Archbishop Gomez as well. And I was complaining about how, you know, I was an investment banker, not sleeping a whole lot. And the confessor says, oh, well, uh, you know, Bishop Gomez, he only needs four or five hours of sleep. And he's, he's good. Like, <laughs> superhero rocket. Sorry. <laughs> so, I mean, no, Gomez really, uh, he brought a good spirit here. You know, he's, you know, he's more subdued. He's more introverted. You know, he, there's a parish nearby where I live where they had a hundred year anniversary. He came out to speak and, you know, he's, you know, very quiet, mild mannered. Um, you know, I would say in terms of all the bishops in the conference, there's others who probably deserve more critique in terms of not being as vocal against um, racism towards black people, racism in general. I mean, Charlie Kamasi, uh, uh, someone, I, I, he teaches at Fordham, but I actually didn't know him when I was at Fordham. Uh, he wrote an article on RNS about um, Gomez and how, how much he's done for anti-racism and you know, all that's true. Gomez doesn't have a strong record of of kind of speaking out or speaking kind of favorably to the black community. I think that's kind of a, a way to grow and kind of what I was alluding to earlier, if he were to do some outreach to some of the black Catholic parishes, maybe in the Knights of Peter Claver and and just kind of just kind of show solidarity just with with the black Catholics, you know, in, in his own home, so to speak. Um, so I guess there's more he could do pastorally. It's not that he's saying and doing a lot of bad things, at least from, from where I sit. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that, I think what was surprising is this, um, this speech was a, a very different tone from the, from the Gomez is more kind of middle of the road. Doesn't like to ruffle feathers. I mean, there was a little bit of ruffling with the whole Biden thing, but other than that, he's kind of like even kind of even keel. So this, this had a, a different tone. It kind of struck for some people kind of a, culture war kind of undertone. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think overall, as my experience of Gomez, he's been, you know, pretty even keel. Yeah. 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 That was, that was my perspective. I thought, of course, you know, from, you know, um, from, you know, my core of the Catholic church, we, you know, we really don't know how to so much take him on the whole, whole Eucharist issue. Um, we like some of it. We don't trust other aspects. He comes off as just a, just another one that just don't want to rock the boat too much. Woody wants to appeal in some way to the orthodox, um, the orthodoxy of the faith. So, so I, I like I said, I, I just kind of took this criticism of him. Just kind of, I thought he should have been given the benefit of the doubt, given that we, he doesn't have this, he doesn't have this record. I mean, this isn't we could we could throw out some names here, some people we. We would expect that maybe some like this from if someone who I like, Bishop Strickland, had had said this. Well, okay, this tracks. This tracks well, mm -hmm. right? Um, but if Baron had wrote this, we'd be like, no, this maybe we should give him the benefit of the doubt because this maybe doesn't seem like. Mm, did he write it? I don't know. So then I just thought the criticism was unfair. In. in in that in that in that regard, I like to bring up the, the point you said about because um, you mentioned this a couple of times, just about how he can do more with the Black Catholics in the diocese, though. Um, why do you say that? Though, so like, is that the only place? Is that like is that the only place? Like, is is racism the only issue with is 
is it only targeted towards black people or or what? Well, yeah, as Kamasi's article showed, you know, Gomez has really been outspoken again or against um, mistreatment of migrants and really talking about the dignity of migrants. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, he's been really uh, outspoken for um, the Latino community, you know, being okay. Mexican descent. So, I mean, he's really demonstrated in some favorable ways. I mean, I think he brings that uh, that element of his experience of being born outside the U.S. It's just that's where he stops short or he okay. not, he could do more, let's just say. Okay. I mean, we all we all can do more. I mean, God calls us all to do more and, you know, uncover some stones and i got some stones and you know we all got some stones yeah yeah there's always more work to do like our lady said all right so cool what any other thoughts about about the letter in in general or the reactions to it yeah my personal reaction when i it's funny it was it's basically just kind of like you said it was a twitter verse that kind of like kind of promulgated this letter and, and bits and pieces and then finally read it, sat with it. And you know, my personal reflection was, you know, I think Archbishop Gomez respectfully needs to hear kind of what, what people in the black Catholic community, how they, how they heard his words, you know, those who felt hurt kind of understanding that why they were feeling that. And I think it's just a good time to do listening. I mean, that's, you know, pastores, doubles, vulvas, give us, give us shepherds after your own heart, after the sacred heart of Jesus. So, it's a good call just to be shepherd and then to come down and, and and listen and be with the people and hear what the people have to say, hear where they feel the church is letting them down or the church is coming short because, you know, I have a perspective, but I'm not a black Catholic. So, and Archbishop Gomez is not a black Catholic. So neither, neither of us can really learn what is going on with them unless we kind of, you know, take our blinders off, take our filters off and, and listen, ask the Holy Spirit to give us that grace of openness and listen and hear and, you know, teach us how to serve, teach us but how to. What, but is that what they wanted, though? Because I didn't really sense that because I've seen at least the one petition, just one an apology without. And so the apology presupposes that the person knows what they need to apologize about. <laughs> and so. It just the what the I didn't hear the tone. I heard anger. I heard disappointment. More anger, and I heard these demands for reparations and apologies and, and all these types of things. And so I, I hear what you're saying about the listening. You and I would definitely agree about that. Every every leader should, um, especially bishops, more particular, should um, you know smell like the sheep, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> should get down there and understand and, and listen. And not to react or to change immediately, but to reflect and consider what the people are saying, especially from a, from a perspective that is, is not something that you may not understand. But I'm not sensing that that's what was asking, and I think that's tracking well with the society that we we live in right now, where people just they just want to. It sounded to me they wanted to cancel Archbishop Gomez. What say you? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's that's a Christian way. I mean, we're about re- reconciliation. We're about um, coming together. I, mean, I, I go I go back to the prodigal son. I mean, that's really the practice of our entire Christian faith. You know, really, whether it's the prodigal son and the older son are really one and the same. It's 
someone who's not who's who's not really living with the father, living in in the father's presence, in the father's um, in that in that um, spirit, and and yeah, there there's I think it's really a call just to say, hey, Archbishop Gomez is a human. He's a loved sinner, He's just like us. We're no better, and we we can we can we can learn to kind of extend the same mercy that God has extended us. Mm-hmm. So, I, yeah. I think I, th- I think the calls for apology. I, I think it's it's almost it's like it's it's what does that do? I mean, he says he's sorry, okay, but what? I think what's more important is something transformative. I mean, that's that's the gift of encounter. That's the gift of encountering people, listening to people, dialoguing with people, getting to know people, putting putting flesh into things instead of, you know, when we see names on Twitter or social media and they're just a caricature, just some something out there. But when it's like a, when it's a flesh and blood, then 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 we allow our hearts to we allow the spirit to change our hearts and to and to open our 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 eyes and our ears. So yeah, I think, I think just asking for apology is, you know, I think that's, that's just a short-sighted goal in my opinion. So you know how these things work. So, you know, a bishop does something in the Catholic church, you know, this is what one part of the thing um, we were pushing in for in, in Baltimore and they just, you know, they're not so much really accountable to us. We don't elect them. We can't fire them. <laughs> um, they all run their own little personal fiefdoms or whatever. So you know how this thing goes. They make us upset. We have a protest, a march, write a petition. Three weeks later, it's forgotten. Um, and so this this um this whole thing started on November 4th. Uh, we're now in the third quarter of the month. What's what's so what's the this is like you and I are doing this wrap up, <laughs> you know, this post wrap up of the whole dust up. So what's what happens from here? What do you think the final outcome is? And give me give me your thoughts on that. Yeah, I'm, I think unfortunately the final outcome is kind of people stay their separate ways as opposed to finding ways to come together until there's the next dust up, until it's some <laughs> other bishop over here or Patricia Gomez again or something else happens, um, which is unfortunate. I think there's an opportunity that we are missing in listening to the spirit who's calling us to unity and to and to grow together and to and to unite so that we can fight some of these evils together fight the sin of racism fight whatever injustice is out there but with the power of christ with the sacred heart one love that is more powerful than all um but i think if we're too busy fighting we're we're not really able to to really pay attention to christ's mission yeah Matt, thanks for coming out of the echo chamber with me to have this discussion. We might have to do this again. I feel like I'm handing in your combs. <laughs> I'd love to, David. Thank you. <laughs> God bless you. God bless you. Thank you. And to those watching, um, until again, blessings and shalom to you and to yours. Hi, everybody. Thank you for watching. Subscribe here to get the latest from the show. Also be sure to check out the content you've missed. If you'd like to keep supporting my work, consider joining my team on Patreon, where you'll be gifted great perks like books, hoodies, and mugs. Thanks again.